This is a Career Channel program from UC San Diego Extension. Visit us at www.uctv.tv careers for videos, employment news, and trend articles to help recent college graduates and grads in career transition bridge to better employment. Hello and welcome to The Pulse, Issues in Healthcare. This is the podcast where leaders share their thoughts on the healthcare issues of the day. I'm Leslie Bruce, your host and the Director of Healthcare Leadership and Community Outreach for UC San Diego Extension. With me today is Chris Van Gorder, CEO of Scripps Health, a $2.6 billion nonprofit health system in San Diego that treats half a million patients a year. Chris has been included on the list of 100 most influential in healthcare in the U.S. five times. He's won numerous awards, including humanitarian awards for his disaster relief work, and has also earned the California Emergency Medical Services Authority Distinguished Service Medal and the gold medal from the American College of Healthcare Executives. Welcome, Chris. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. We're delighted to have you. So first, let's set the context by briefly describing the Scripps Health System. Well, we're uh, now about a $2.7 billion healthcare system with five hospitals. Uh, we have the closest hospital to the border, our Scripps Mercy Chula Vista. Uh, actually, both our, our Mercy Hospital downtown San Diego and Chula Vista are disproportionate share hospitals, meaning mm-hmm. we take care of a, a disproportionate percentage of poor and underinsured patients. Um, and then, of course, we have our hospitals in La Jolla, uh, Scripps La Jolla, Scripps uh, Green Hospital, and then Scripps Memorial Hospital in Sanitas. And, now I think we have just shy of 30 ambulatory sites as we uh, kind of change our healthcare delivery system from what was very hospital-based to much more of a healthcare system, mm-hmm. uh, doing everything we can actually to keep our patients out of the hospital. Uh, we have about 2,600 physicians and about 15,000 employees. Good so. heavens. Well, that is a large, a large group on which to ride herd, I would say. And I know you would probably not characterize it like that, but we'll get to that. So you, of course, are the CEO, and there are a lot of things about you that might surprise people. (laughs) The first might be your career path. Your journey to the top is quite an unorthodox one. So tell us about it, um, if you would, starting with your education. Sure. well, I, you know, I had to work my way through school. My, my parents were Depression-era kids that actually had to drop out of school just to take care of their family members. And so my parents, from the, from the first time I can remember, really wanted us to have a, a college education. And so I'm a twin, and, and oh. uh, both my brother and I uh, ultimately went to uh, the Cal- California State University system. So I got my bachelor's at California State University of Los Angeles in uh, political science and public administration. Um, and then uh, eventually my uh, master's degree in uh, health services administration and public administration from the University of Southern California. And then once I became a CEO, I went to the Wharton School's program for uh, healthcare chief executives. Right, so, I've heard it's yeah. a wonderful program. It is. Great. Well, th- then what happened? Well, uh, you know, I've uh, again <laughs> a very unusual career path. I, I, I actually, I've been a, a clerk in the emergency room. I was a, a security officer in a hospital. Uh, an office manager of a clinical laboratory, and then I became a police officer. Uh, completely changed career paths, and I, th- I felt that that was going to be my, my uh, permanent career. But unfortunately, life doesn't always work that way, and I was uh, severely injured in, in the line of duty when a uh, woman who was having a fight with her family um, tried to kill me, to be very honest with you. Mm-hmm. Um, severely injured in and out of hospitals for a year. Uh, at the end of the year, the, the uh, police department retired me, 
and the hospital that took care of me hired me, um, an orthopedic hospital in downtown Los Angeles. And um, uh, at that point I was a department director and I looked at what the administrators did and, and thought I'd like to do that, went back to graduate school and ultimately went to uh, Anaheim Memorial Hospital as a vice president, eventually became chief executive officer there, uh, then chief executive officer over at uh, Long Beach Memorial Medical Center, which is one of the largest hospitals in the state. And then in December of 1999, came uh, to Scripps as the chief of healthcare operations, or the chief operating officer. And six months later, I was CEO. And uh, that's uh, now just shy of 16 years ago. Incredible. It was quite the journey. I think it's very interesting in the book how you talk about um, the lessons learned on the police force and how you bring them forward today. Um, speaking of the book, let's, um, let's tell our listeners you have a relatively new book out, less than a year old, called The Frontline Leader, Building a High-Performing Organization from the Ground Up. What motivated you to write a book? You know, I, I, I'm told that 80% of the people in the United States would like to write a book. And, <laughs> I think and, that's true. And, um, and I thought about it on and off, but frankly just never had the time to do it. And I was profiled in a Fortune magazine article, actually it was Scripps being profiled, but mm-hmm. I ended up getting the lead on that, I guess. And uh, because of our, our thing, now we've been on Fortune magazine's top 100 employers list, I think eight years in a row. Mm-hmm. And the latest list is gonna come out here very shortly. Um, and the a literary agent in Boston uh, read it and called me and he says, you've got this crazy story, you ought to write a book. Huh. And my response was, I'm not sure I have the time to do that. He goes. I'm an agent. I'll 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 work your way through this whole process, and so um, I sat down and and ultimately wrote the frontline leader um, in a matter of just a few months. Interesting, um, and it's it's gone very well. Well, that's wonderful. I can I see it everywhere, so I think that's <laughs> wonderful. I in in the book, I think this is very interesting. You say that your job is to protect and serve your people, and that yeah. certainly evokes your police history. What does that mean to you? Protect and serve your people in yeah. the healthcare setting. Yeah, you know, I think that um, leaders have a, a real responsibility to take care of the people that they are responsible to lead. And I, I, I loved being a police officer, to be very honest with you. And, and um, while I certainly arrested a number of people that deserved to be arrested, and and uh, but I also did a lot of rescue work during that period of time. And um, CPR on people and able to get bring them back and do all those kinds of things and this whole concept of protecting and serving the public was just just you know something important to me and I think it just carried over a lot of the things I learned uh, taking care of your partner and having your partner take care of you and um, and being situationally aware and all those types of things that you learn as a police officer just carried over for me in terms of my management style. Mm-hmm. And so for me, taking care of the 15,000 uh, people at Scripps is incredibly important to me, particularly during times of significant change mm-hmm. when um, many healthcare organizations across the country uh, are laying off and, um, and doing, you know, kind of balancing the budget on the backs of their people. Um, most of those people didn't do anything to deserve to be laid off. It was probably a management failure that caused the layoff to occur at all. Mm-hmm. And so we, I just believe that it's, it's our responsibility as, as leaders and managers uh, to pick really good people and to hold them accountable for what they're supposed to do, but also to protect and make them feel secure in the work that they do. Well, there's a lot of things that you mentioned in that answer that I want to get back to. They, mm-hmm. they spark a lot of thoughts in my mind. But um, back to the front line employee, what is it about engaging them that's so vital? Well, that's the work we do. 
I mean, you know, we, we don't exist to do administration. We don't exist to do finance and accounting, which we all have to do. We exist to take care of every patient that needs us uh, when they need us, one patient at a time and one family at a time. And so who is it that, that's going to interface with that, that patient? That's that frontline employee. So mm-hmm. as far as I'm concerned, the, the point of the spear for us uh, at Scripps is, is our frontline nurses and you know the, the um, patient financial service people that are dealing directly with the patient when they register and, and our environmental service people that are making sure that the environment is clean and healthy for the patients. Um, our food service workers that, you know, sometimes having been a patient for a very long time, you know, the one joy I had in a day was having a little bit of a meal. And I look forward to that. Well, those are, you know, and, uh, and most of those people don't get letters of thanks. Mm-hmm. People assume that the facility is going to be clean and they assume they're going to be treated respectfully. And frankly, they, they assume they're going to get good patient care. Um, but, you know, it's my job to thank them and take care of them. Well, you know, on that very point, in reading the book, I was struck by how much you embody the notion of servant leader and, you know, focusing primarily on the growth and well-being of the people and the communities to which you belong. Is the servant leadership philosophy one that you were consciously influenced by or is it just part of your DNA? Um, You know, I think I was taught early on uh, by my parents Uh a little bit of that servant leadership. Um, my mother was born in Scotland, my father in Canada. Uh, he was in World War II in the Canadian Army, um, but emigrated to the United States, uh, California. And again, not only was, you know, were, were my brother and I encouraged to go to college, um, um, my father truly loved this country. And he said, at some point, he says, you've got to do something to benefit society. And so uh, he said, you either need to go in the military, and, and uh, I would have been eligible right towards the end of the Vietnam War, et cetera, mm. uh, or do something else. And I think that's what got me initially interested in law enforcement. Didn't look like I was going to go the military path, but I wanted to do something to serve the community and give back to what the community and this country has given to my family. And I think, that's, so was, I think that all started as a, as a young child with my parents. Very good. You know, a lot of this reminds me of how how valid today what we would consider old-fashioned principles yeah. are, how yeah. valid they are, and how hopefully they're making a resurgence. One, of the, one, one point in the book you say you're a strange CEO. <laughs> what is it that makes you most unusual? Oh, boy. Um, I almost hate to talk about myself in that regard. I, I, I do think I'm a little bit strange because... Um, I did come up through the ranks, mm-hmm. um, from the very bottom of the organization now to the top. In fact, it's interesting that um, the security officers at Scripps really love to sit down and talk with me because, you know, I always look at them and say, I wonder which one of you are going to be the next CEO at Scripps, you know, and to give hope to them that, sure. you know, they're at a, you know, a very important job, um, but, um, you know, the idea of aspiring to be CEO is just so foreign. Mm-hmm. And But I don't think that's that's the case. I mean, so I just, you know, I've, I've dealt with a lot of CEOs in my time that, you know, are really kind of, you know, pleased that they're CEOs and they get to act like CEOs. And uh, I'll never forget, um, you know, when I was a security officer, um, two o'clock in the morning, walking down a corridor and the first time I ever saw the chief executive officer. And I'd only seen him in photographs before. And I went, wow, I think this is my opportunity to, to meet, you know, really the big man in the organization. And he walked right by, by me like I didn't exist. And I remember at the oh. time feeling totally crushed. Like, oh, sure. am I so unimportant that he couldn't even nod his head hello or anything like that? And then it struck me that, 
you know, if any emergency had happened in that hospital right then, I would be the first person they called. He would probably be the last person they called. Mm -hmm. And it just reminded me from the very beginning that frontline employee really is the most important. So um, I never, you know, uh, go without answering an email um, to anybody that e that emails me. And and uh, particularly that frontline staff because they des deserve that respect. Mm -hmm. You know, I, and I, I deal with other CEOs that I'll send a note to and I might not hear back from them at all. And if I do, it certainly isn't going to be within the same day. So there's practices that I've taken on personally that are very strange and unusual, I think, for a CEO. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of some of those practices that you outline in the book, one of them is the importance of committing to whatever tactics a leader or an organization chooses, um, like the ones you mentioned. Um, to quote you, you say, carve out the time from your schedule and stick to the plan. And one tactic you personally took on was producing what you call market news. Can you tell the listeners what that is and why you do it? Um, what I do with um, what I call now market news um, is I will I get up at four thirty five o'clock every every day of the year. Uh, it's not it's not just Monday through Friday, and I know I have to do research about what's going on in the country in terms of healthcare. So I I start with looking at the San Diego Union Tribune and then the Los Angeles Times and New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and Washington um, you know Post and then you know Wall Street Journal a whole bunch of them. And I summarize the articles of the day um, and put it in market news. Um, and I actually now, I didn't do it at the beginning, but now I actually have employees sending me photographs from where they are around the country or from their unit. And I always start market news with a couple of photographs because I figure that maybe people will open it just to look at the photographs. And if they just read some of the titles, mm -hmm. you know, then they're going to start to understand what is going on in healthcare that's driving the decisions that we're making. Mm -hmm. Employees... Um, are you know they get so focused on what they're responsible for doing, taking care of the patient, running their unit, etc. They don't understand the drivers, and though so when we make decisions to change the direction of the organization, they question why are we doing those things because they don't understand the big picture. Mm -hmm. Market news helps them see every single day the big picture, mm -hmm. and so it starts connecting the dots, sure, and that's sure. why I do it. Yeah, it would, I can certainly understand it. It's such a big commitment that I think it's particularly unusual and. You know, I just wonder, have you ever gotten up at 4.30 in the morning going, you know, I'm going to delegate this? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Our marketing communication department really doesn't like the fact that I do that. Oh, I mean, they okay. have asked me many times. They said, we can do that for you. And I said, you could, but then the articles you pick are the ones you think are important, not the ones I think are important. And so I think this has to be done by me mm -hmm. so that I'm driving the kind of information and knowledge that I think is going to be important for the employees. And so they're, they're supportive of me, but, um, um, but I think this is something I personally have to do as CEO. I understand. Um, I, and we're talking about taking care of employees. One of the principles you recommend for leaders in the book is taking care of the me. Yeah. What does that mean? Well, you know, um, the me is, it's a very simple concept. I mean, when people in, in life and at work, um, their number one responsibility is probably going to be themselves and their well-being, their faith, their family. You know, that's the number one thing. They come to work maybe to get some personal gratification from work, but it's to earn an income to take care of themselves and their family members. And so it's a very natural instinct for people to be always looking out for themselves. And if they feel that, that their, the, the me is threatened, people will resist. It's a, just a natural instinct. And so what we try to do is take the me out of the equation. And so that's why uh, we created years ago a no layoff philosophy at Scripps. 
It's not a policy. If we had to to save the company, we would. Uh, but I, again, I believe a, a, a layoff is a management failure, and the people who ultimately lose their jobs didn't do anything wrong to lose their jobs. And so our philosophy is we're going to have people change jobs. Things are going to change, but what we will do is we will retrain them. We have what we call the Career Resource Center that we put people in that full pay when their job has been eliminated at no fault of their own, and then we redeploy them in another job at Scripps. And so I think in the 10 years or so we've had this in, in place, we have well over 1,000 people who've gone through the Career, career Resource Center, and I think 95% of those are still employees at Scripps, and extraordinarily loyal because in any other organization, most likely they would have lost their job. And so we do that in all sorts of things. We have you know, um, employees that just look out for patients in crisis, or employees in crisis to try to help them through those crises to take, again, the me out of the equation. And what does it do? You know, it certainly takes care of people, but it makes them incredibly loyal to the organization too, and we get mm-hmm. we get a real benefit from that. I can I can completely understand that. I think first of all, it's incredibly refreshing that a CEO um, would would take responsibility for layoffs because very few of them do. Yeah. You know, um, well, we already agreed I'm strange. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Um, you say people's livelihoods hinge on my performance, and you obviously said a couple times that layoffs are often a leadership failure. Right. And even saying, going so far as to say it stems from a lack of vision. Um, and, and I think this two-way loyalty is something that we lost mm-hmm. for a few decades. This, you know, lo- loyalty of the company to the employee and the employee to the company. And, and you're, the, the things you describe in the book are going a long way toward bringing that back in, in your institution. Um, one of the other things that I noticed in the book was he said it's hard to get into scripts. In other words, to mm-hmm. get hired by scripts. Um, one, because you have a strong practice of hiring from within. And second, you're very deliberate in your hiring from the outside. What do you look for in potential employees from the outside? Um, we only go to the outside when, when we can't promote somebody from the inside or, you know, and if, certainly if it's an entry-level job. We even look at, at, at transfers before we'll actually go to the outside. Um, and so, again, we believe that we should be a career destination at Scripps and help people achieve their careers. One of the first things we do when we employ somebody is, uh, is determine where they want to end up, what are their career goals, and help them chart a path to achieve those goals. And that keeps people with the organization. When we do go to the outside, um, we, we certainly look for technical expertise if the, if, the, if the technical expertise is required a nursing license or something like that, obviously. But we also look for cultural fit. Mm-hmm. Um, we look for people who, who, who want to come here and really, truly make a difference. And, you know, there's no guarantee that they'll stay with us a long time, and we know that. Um, but we want people to come in and really fit within our culture and organization and, frankly, want to grow and have an interest in maybe Scripps as a career destination of mm-hmm. staying with us a long time. I think this year we're going to have at least two employees with 50-year anniversaries. Holy cow. You know? Wow, um, that's incredible. One in the same unit the entire oh. time, which is absolutely incredibly amazing. Right. And so we have a lot of long-term employees, and they bring real value and knowledge and, uh, you know, knowledge of the past that we can present for the future. And so mm-hmm. uh, we will bring in people from the outside, but we get about a half a million applicants a year for about 2,000 jobs, and about 1,000 of those we'll bring in from the outside. Hmm. So it really is difficult to apply and get a job at Scripps. That's very interesting. Well, 
you know, you talk about what a place to work it and how you guide employees to um, achieve their career goals. And, and I think that's part of the reason you've earned a number of best place to work awards, right. one of which was from AARP. Right. Um, what about Scripps has earned this honor, do you think? I mean, any other specifics? Well, we've been, it's a, it's a very good question. We've been on a path. And when I first got at Scripps, th things were in chaos at Scripps. And we were on the verge of bankruptcy back then. Uh, our employees, we, our turnover was like 30% annually. Mm. Um, our doctors were angry and had voted no confidence. And my predecessor left, and that's why I became CEO. And one of the things I wanted to do is, is really find out what, our, what our, our employees were concerned about. And so we joined the Great Place to Work uh, organization. They have this very comprehensive employee survey. Um, and we scored, I think, that first year, I think 55 out of 100. I mean, it was bad. Mm -hmm. And there are two open questions we ask. What makes this a great place to work? And what would make it a better place to work? And believe me, the, what would make it a better place to work was a lot longer than what made it a good place to work. But we pay attention to those. I read all those comments every year. I think mm -hmm. the first year we had 700 pages of single-line comments. And today it's it's more like 2,000 pages of single-line comments. Good heavens. And I read them all. Um, and what it does, it, sometimes you feel a little bipolar because one person will say, we have great benefits and salary. And the next person says, I wish we had got a pay raise kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But you get themes out of it. Sure. And what the themes we got is that we were very rigid in terms of our benefit structure and things like that. We, we weren't flexible to employees' needs, meaning somebody towards the end of their career is much more interested in their retirement benefits than a millennial or, you know, Gen X or whatever, you know, who's more interested in salary. And so we created a structure that we call life cycle benefits that they can change as, as you age, et cetera. So we started customizing things for our people as opposed to trying to make them fit into our, our structure. And people responded to that. And they responded to our philosophies. Um, our turnover rate went way down uh, to best in the country. Um, and ultimately, we moved our scores up from the 55 to where it is now, which is always at the high 80s or 90, mm -hmm. and, and one of the top 100 employers, and, which we're extraordinarily proud about. I would think. And so, that's yeah. wonderful. And what a, specifically about AARP, do you think? Oh, AARP. Well, you know, we actually don't go out looking for awards. I think, that, again, <laughs> that takes resources to do that. Mm -hmm. um, but AARP liked the, these flexible benefits and the mm -hmm. fact that we created, for example, a phased retirement. Oh. Before we ended up, you know, you retired, you retired. Well, some people want, you know, they're, they're getting older. They don't want to work a full schedule. But, you know, they'd still like to work. And so we created a phased retirement program so people can work a little. So I think they don't... that's wise. Very exactly. Wise. And, yeah. of course, that kept our people with us and all sorts of other programs for um, our, our, our older employees. AARP recognized that and, and um, ranked us uh, at one point. I think we've always been in the top five, but number one in the country for workers over 50. Uh, at the same time, though, we've gotten awards for working mothers, and so we've been able to, you know, spread the entire spectrum of age in mm -hmm. terms of the recognition and rewards for the organization. Yeah, that's very impressive. Um, in looking at the other opportunities and resources for growth within the organization, I was particularly fascinated to read about both your Leadership Academy oh. and your Physician Leadership Academy that you helped develop at Scripps. So many healthcare organizations outsource their leadership training to leadership consulting companies right. and to trade associations and the like, and yet you do the opposite. Why? 
I had actually participated in a couple of leadership academies in other organizations where they did, in fact, bring in other people. And what they were trying to teach is management and leadership. What I wanted to do is create a culture vehicle, a culture-changing vehicle. And so when I first started, our hospitals actually didn't even like each other much. And we, they, one hospital to the other would actually have plans to take patients from each other. Well, that doesn't benefit the community or our organization. Mm-hmm. So you, you know, a CEO can't write a memo and change culture, and the frontline employee can't do it. But my thought was the middle managers can change the culture. And so the first year we brought in three uh, people from three middle managers from each of our campuses and facilities, and we spend a year together. And probably the heart of it is I I start the session with a a two-and-a-half-hour Q&A, wide-open Q&A. Anything's on the table except violating patient confidentiality, some personnel things, and if we've signed a confidentiality agreement. And if they don't ask me the tough questions, I I chide them until they really get, they build a, a trust. And I build a trust in them. Mm-hmm. And I remember at the, in our, in our, it's our, all the faculty is internal. It's our executives who come in and talk about their career path and how did they get there. So we, we really make it clear that you can get there from here sure, and, sure. Uh, and how their department works. And so I almost describe it as the most detailed orientation to how Scripps really works. And it's amazing how that just opens the eyes of our managers. And at the end of the first year, one manager said, what, what, you know, we've had this wonderful year. What do you expect of us? And I said, well, you're my agents of culture change. I, I expect you to go out and demand more from the people you work for and deliver more to the people that you're working with. And I said, today there's 25, but in a year there'll be 50 and then 75. And now they're you know, over 300. And alumni. Alumni. Uh-huh. They, I meet with them every month to do a Q&A. Um, they manage our Scripps Night at the ballpark and all sorts of events uh, because they're now acting as leaders. And they have truly changed the culture of our organization. And it all came from the, uh, from the Leadership Academy. That's incredible. Um, one of the things that I think is particularly remarkable when, when I read about it was that you said that overall you spend approximately 100 hours annually interfacing with managers as part of the program. Oh, at least. Yeah. And that would be incredibly off-putting to most senior executives. Why not you? You know, um, those are mo- those are my favorite days of the year. I mean, I do that with our Leadership Academy. We have an Employee 100, which is an abbreviated leader- Leadership Academy for frontline employees, and our Physician Leadership uh, Academy. And you know, I, I mean, this, being a CEO and healthcare is just stressful these days. Sure. And when you take on the burden of taking care of fifteen thousand plus people. You know, it does feel stressful at times. And I will go in and spend a full day with a leadership academy or employee 100. And I walk out, I go, we have the best talent in the world. We're going to get there from here. So it is a huge motivator for me. And maybe I'm giving something to them a little bit, but I think I get more more from it. You're exhilarated from yeah. the experience. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, I noticed that your physician leadership academy includes administrators. Right. And I was looking for that, actually. And I wondered, given the, the new world of team-based care, if you include other kinds of leaders in that one who can interface then with physicians, you know, like nurse leaders or pharmacy yeah. leaders or people like that. Is that yeah, actually, actually the, the Physician Leadership Academy is an open forum. And what we discovered is unlike a kind of a cohort, which we do with Leadership Academy and Employee 100, um, doctors have a much different schedule. And, mm-hmm. of course, they're not our employees. And when we tried to run a program exactly like we modeled after the other ones, it didn't work. Um, and so what we now do is it's, it's an open session that we mm-hmm. invite any uh, physician that would like to learn more about what we're doing and how we're doing it and learn about leadership, they're welcome. So we can have anywhere from 30 to 80 physicians show up and the administrator, their counterparts, 
Uh, others are welcome to come on in and sit in, and, and as well and interchange with the doctor. So it's pretty much an open forum. And the reason we ultimately have the administrative uh, people is at Scripps Clinic, we operate now in a dyad, dyad model where the administrator and physician really manages a unit together. And mm -hmm. we wanted them to come in and learn together. So uh -huh. it helped them bond together. Makes, makes sense. What are some of the other educational opportunities that you offer employees? Oh, it's, it's huge. Um, uh, we created what we call the Center for Learning and Innovation. Mm -hmm. um, and it's interesting, the only person with a title of innovator is our head of uh, human resources because we believe the, the best way we can innovate for the future is through our people. It isn't all about technology. And, um, and so we have this, this huge function now that we didn't have at all in it before I came, but now we have... I almost hesitate to say how many people we have now that are teachers, and uh, we do everything from you know an emerging leader program. So these are employees that would like to get in management, but you know, getting from one spot to another is very difficult. So we put them through a year-long program, and they get to to shadow a, a manager or another and learn a little bit about the job and to prepare themselves. We have you know certainly all the the clinical education programs. We have you know dealing with stress and crisis. I mean, just a whole array of classes that employees can take if they want to. Um, and the whole idea is certainly we want a well-educated uh, workforce. We like to train people in the way we think as opposed to sending them outside and having that brought back in, mm -hmm. although certainly people go out and get external education all the time as well, including at UCSD, of course. And then, um, uh, and then this whole concept of continuing to grow and move your career to where you want because then we keep our people. See, I just, it's a win-win. It I like it. Um, one of the things that you talk about in the book um, in, in this remarkable journey of turning around the organization and transforming it into a thriving, forward-looking organization, your sense of servant leadership extends to your external community as well, not just within Scripps. As so I'm thinking about your experience in disaster relief, Right. Can you you said you're going to KPBS to talk about Katrina. Right. Um, tell us a little bit about your your role in disaster relief. I suspect some of that came out of me being a police officer uh, mm -hmm. years ago. Um, but um, it was at, it was nine eleven where my chief medical officer and I uh, rushed into our our offices. At that point, we had no idea if the California was going to be attacked as as other parts of the country. Um, and we realized how woefully underprepared we were in certain things. We have the greatest trauma system, you know, in mm -hmm. the country here yes. in San Diego. Uh, but what if it was biological or chemical or nuclear? And I, and I felt we were, were woefully underprepared. And in fact, I think healthcare employees um, are very similar to police officers and firefighters in that if we had contaminated patients come to us, I'm absolutely certain our people would put themselves in harm's way to try to take care of them. And so we didn't have self-contained breathing apparatus and all the appropriate clothing to protect themselves. Mm -hmm. And so we said we wanted to build a system to protect our people, but as we're doing that, why don't we build something that we can go into the community to help protect our community if uh, the resources were stretched? Um, and so we built what we call the Scripps Medical Response Team. Um, Katrina happened, you know, 10 years ago, and we got the call from the Surgeon General of the United States to deploy our team to the Gulf. We ended up in Houston. Uh, for three different teams went in. I think it was a total of about 74 doctors and nurses and others that we sent there. And it was a phenomenal experience. And, um, and the Surgeon General said, he said, Chris, he said, we, we, you know, we've tapped out the resources of the federal government. We need to go to the private sector now. And out of that came, um, you know, uh, Governor Schwarzenegger buying three mobile field hospitals and we wrote the protocols for the hospital. 
Scripps Medical Response Team and what we call the Hospital Administrative Support Unit will deploy if those hospitals ever get deployed. We're the first team to go with them. Mm. Um, and that's what got us into Haiti and other things. So it's been, it, it, it's, it brings the mission to life um, because people know what we do every day here in San Diego. But when you take it out and our employees get so proud of what we do and the doctors all of a sudden realize that we truly are a mission-oriented organization. So we get benefit too. Very interesting. I think um, it's, it speaks well of this community to have that um, incredible resource and um, talent available in preparation. Um, turning again to some of the other things that you do, you are a fellow in the American College of Healthcare Executives and a former president of the national organization. What about ACHE, that the acronym, what about ACHE motivates your support? Um, that is our professional society that uh, credentials um, leaders based upon their academic and professional performance. And just like uh, physicians who have become fellows of the American College of Surgery or something like that, administrators have the same educational kind of res responsibilities to make sure that we are capable to do our jobs and, and we are continuing to be educated along the way to make sure that we are competent in those jobs. And my, uh, when I was a, literally an administrative resident, my CEO, uh, who was a regent with the uh, ACHE, encouraged uh, me to join. So I joined as a student and have been a member ever since. But it gives me networking opportunities across the country, great educational opportunities. But as you probably can tell, I always believe that it's, I have to give something back. And so I got involved in the leadership and ultimately became uh, the chair of the board of the American College of Healthcare Executives Board of Governors which was an extraordinarily high honor, and, um, and uh, I, I'm, I'm to, I still pinch myself that I had the chance to do that. Well, we have a wonderful chapter, of course, in San Diego. Um, with, I think, about a 500 members, and um, I sit on the board, actually. Of the, right. you know, the, San Diego doing... Association, or Sa San Diego Organization of Health Leaders. Uh, right, exactly, and it's a wonderful organization. If everybody, if everybody wants to know about it, yeah. go ahead and, and look for the San Diego chapter online. Um, let's talk about the future a little bit. Um, obviously, we have the ACA. Um, you have said that though you don't think it's perfect, you support it. Uh -huh. um, why is that? Well, you know, I think it's uh, the ACA uh, was a political uh, animal to a degree. Mm -hmm. uh, every president, uh, including Republicans, interesting, uh, have wanted to do something about health care reform when they were in president. Uh, when they were president, I mean, even Richard Nixon. Uh, who lost a brother to tuberculosis and his mother actually had to move out of California to Arizona and had to bring in um, um, other TB patients just to be able to make ends meet. Mm -hmm. Wanted to find some way of taking care of the, uh, of the ill in this country and not make it a financial burden on them. Um, but the political stars were never lined up all the way from literally Roosevelt all the way until uh, Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. And when they got control of the presidency and the Senate and the House, um, the stars were aligned to pass something. Um, unlike business, I think sometimes uh, the government passes a bill that's the best they can do at the time, but it almost always is flawed, but they fix it over time. Right. What we do in business is we work very hard in designing a strategic plan that, um, you know, and, and we try to make it perfect before we implement it. So we, we, we operate a little bit backwards. Mm. Um, the challenge we've had, of course, with the ACA um, is normally, I think Congress would have fixed the errors or, or the flaws in it. Um, but 
with it, you got to have both the Republicans and Democrats willing to do that, and of course the Republicans haven't been willing to do that so far. But we still have looming things like the, the so-called Cadillac tax and other things that are looming that may bring some of the legislators together to get some corrections down the road. But, uh, but it was necessary. We had, it, it was an embarrassment from this country not to, or to have so many people uninsured. Um, Health care is going to bankrupt this country if we don't get control of costs. Mm-hmm. And so we needed to start down this path. And that's why I think we support the ACA. We just think, we hope that it gets, you know, f- tweaked along the way to make like it a better Medicare line. has been, you know, over Constantly. 50 years and, you know, it's been constantly tweaked. And I, I agree with you. I think okay. that's what needs to happen. It wasn't born perfect. It just needs to be, you know, um, worked on a bit. Yeah. So given the tumult in healthcare right now, that things are changing so much, um, some CEOs are retiring mm-hmm. in, in that um, scenario um, because they don't want any part of it. And, and yet you seem to have a completely different attitude about it. Is it because you feel you're not alone? Oh, I, that's certainly part of it. Uh, it. It's actually quite quite serious right now. One out of every four uh, healthcare CEOs retiring annually right now. So okay. 25% annually. Um, those are notes. Those are uh, statistics. ACHE actually came out with as as they studied that. So I think there's a couple things going on. Certainly, um, you know, CEOs aren't usually the young folks in the organization, so they are getting to the point where they need to retire. But I also think there are a number of them out there that are going. You know, the change ahead is going to be very difficult, and they either feel like they're not up for it or they just don't want to have to deal with it. So there's going to be huge turnover, I think, in the senior leadership of healthcare organizations over the next few years. Um, I have two perspectives on it. Number one, I'm not ready to stop yet. Um, I've got a a, a wonderful organization, a wonderful board uh, to work for. Um, We've made so many strides over the last 15, 16 years, but we're not done yet. And I'd like to see a few of those, you know, continued on and solidified uh, before I make a decision to retire. Um, and And I still feel responsible for an organization. It's interesting. I I'll get a question every so often from an employee, you know, I'll do a big forum and all of a sudden say, you know, you're not retiring anytime soon, are you? Because mm-hmm. I think there's faith in the leadership of the organization as I have faith in them. And I, as I tell them, I said, my time will come, but not yet. Mm-hmm. Work is, our work is not done yet. Um, very interesting. And I, I think we need to leave it at that as we're out of time. But even though we barely scratched the surface of this wonderful book, again, the book is The Frontline Leader, Building a High-Performing organization from the ground up authored by my guest chris van gorder it's available on amazon and in local bookstores and if you're very lucky you might just get chris to sign it (laughs) i'd be happy to sign it that would be great all right well thank you chris it's been a real pleasure having you thank you leslie thank you listeners to be notified of future podcasts go to extension.ucsd.edu and click on my extension and share with us your email address If you have suggestions for guests you'd like to see interviewed, please email me at careerchannel at ucsd.edu. For now, this is Leslie Bruce saying here's to your health.